0: The music you're listening to is Western Dawn by Victor Samalot of Cleveland, Ohio. Victor is our featured musical artist this week, so stick around till the end of the podcast. We'll play the whole song for you and tell you a little more about his Latin jazz guitar music and where you can see him perform. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. We've got a new mystery. For this one, we're pulling out a little-known but bizarre murder from a close-knit community in rural Wayne County. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody.
0: So, we've been to Wayne County on this podcast a couple of times. I recall visiting those hooligans in Rogues Hollow... And we told you about the disappearance of Melvin Horst in Orville. Where are you taking us this time?
1: Steve, I am taking you to the northwestern edge of Wayne County and a tiny little village called
0: West Salem. Have you ever been? No, I've seen the sign off the highway saying. Salem.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? The next time you see that sign on I 71 in the direction of Columbus, you're going to do what I do. Every time you see it, you are going to think of poor Clifford Badger. Ever since I first heard about his case in the 1990s, that's the reaction I have to that sign every time I pass
0: it. Well, I have a feeling after you tell us this story, I'm going to start noticing that West Salem sign a little bit more and thinking of Clifford Badger. So I'm ready when you are.
1: Right. Well, for this story, we're going to go back to 1971. Now, today, West Salem is a thriving metropolis of 1,500 people. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> but it wasn't even <laughs> that big in 1971. Back then, it was home to a mere 1,000 residents. And if you live in a town of 1,000 residents, chances are you know just about everyone.
0: Yeah, people are going to know you.
1: So, indeed, it does appear most everyone knew Clifford Badger. He was a sheep rancher. And he owned a big 130-acre farm along State Route 301. Now, in town, Route 301 is Main Street, and that divides West Salem in half. So if you take Main Street and head south, Badger lived four miles south of the town center. Okay. Now, Badger's 59 years old. He's a hardworking, steady guy, a consistent churchgoer. He and his 57-year-old wife, Helen, raised five strapping sons, all appeared to be hardworking and well-educated young men. The youngest, John, was 20. He was a mechanic, still lived on the farm. Phil was 24. He was a graduate student at Ohio State University. Carl, 26, worked construction in Worcester. Uh, Jim, 28, lived in Orville, And the eldest, Dave, 32, lived in Ashland. So it's a Saturday morning. It's March 15th. And Badger has some early morning business at the New Pittsburgh Grain Elevator. I had to look up New Pittsburgh. That's about a 50-minute drive west of West Salem. Okay. And he makes it back home around 1030 in the morning. And as he pulls up to his mailbox, it was just an ordinary white mailbox alongside the, the two-lane road, he sees there's a package inside. It's a box wrapped in plain brown paper. It has his address on it and a return address for one of his neighbors. And we'll never know if he noticed it or not, but there is no postage on this box. Now, Badger takes the box into his home and unwraps it to find a simple handwritten message to our good neighbor, and with that nice sentiment is a fine selection of homemade chocolates. Huh. What would you do at this point? Um, I going to eat it. You wouldn't? No. Oh, boy. I'm a sucker. (laughs) I probably would have done exactly what Badger did. You're
0: the first one to get poisoned (laughs) on this one.
1: How did you know this was a poisoning? Oh, I can
0: just guess.
1: (laughs) I think I telegraphed that too much.
0: Yeah, because I didn't look up anything on this. No, you I like to be surprised.
1: Well, I, I may surprise you yet. So Badger, he pops a chocolate into his mouth, and his wife is right on his heels. A moment later, Helen selects a piece of candy for herself and eats it setting the rest on the kitchen table.
0: Oh, man, I hope it isn't filled with that toothpaste stuff. You know, you bite into that chocolate and it has that, like, toothpaste filling. You ever do that?
1: Um, No, but... Everybody
0: knows that with a box of chocolates comes that really nasty filling in a couple of them.
1: I think they would have been happy for that. Oh, okay. Because that's not what filled this. Yeah. I mean, immediately it's evident that something isn't right. Badger doubles over and falls to the kitchen floor... Almost immediately, he loses consciousness, and within minutes, he'll be dead.
0: Oh, man. It didn't smell like almonds, did it?
1: Uh, They did not report that. Okay. Now, Helen, smart woman, she reacts quickly. She knows her fate may be a mere minute or two behind her husband's. She quickly grabs the phone, dials the West Salem Volunteer Fire Department. She's already writhing on the floor, but she manages to tell them she and her husband have been poisoned. And then she loses consciousness. Now, the fire department gets there quickly. And they rush Helen to Lodi Community Hospital, where doctors, thankfully, are able to revive her, and she will survive the ordeal. But there's no hope for her husband. Now, police find the box of chocolates on the kitchen table where the Badgers had placed it, two voids where they had each taken a piece of candy. And it doesn't take long to determine that the chocolate had been heavily laced with strychnine, which oh. is a chemical commonly used by farmers for pest control.
0: Oh, here I thought it was, um, oh, what was that stuff that Jim Jones gave his people?
1: Oh, oh. arsenic?
0: They said it smells like almonds, that's why I brought it up. Okay. Bitter almonds, oh well.
1: Yeah, well, this, uh, this was strychnine. Okay. I should ask you to spell that word. Strychnine? Can you spell Strychnine?
0: Um, Wrong. Okay. Okay.
1: (laughs) Moving on. Pretty quickly, pretty quickly, the Wayne County Sheriff rules out the neighbor who's on the return address. Uh, Somebody has faked that information. But since this box had no postage stamp, clearly someone had driven up and did the deed in person. But who? April comes and goes. May, June, no suspects. July, August, no arrests. In September, an anonymous benefactor puts up a $500 reward. Now, some townsfolk laugh at the small sum, but it doesn't help anyway. Nobody comes forward. This case is growing cold fast. And livid at the slow pace of the investigation, the Badger family goes on the offensive. They are angry. They are convinced that the murderer is still living in town, probably a resident of West Salem, and they accuse Wayne County Sheriff Glenn Reich of dragging his feet.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of agree with them. Uh, this is probably a very intimate, you know it has to do with somebody there.
1: Yeah, and, and they've got a couple of it seems uh, legitimate concerns. They said it took the sheriff three days to question the mailman to see if he had seen the package when he delivered the mail that day.
0: And that's a lot of package well. That's not a long that time area.
1: to wait to question the mailman over right. something that was in so the box. you're going to remember that box. Well, it could have, yeah, absolutely, okay, absolutely, and it could have fine tuned the time when that package was left in the mailbox. So, by the way, I can't answer whether the mailman had seen it or not. That that little fact was never reported. Um, but the Badgers also said it took two months for Reich to visit the farm himself to talk to Mrs. Badger once she had returned home from her hospital recovery.
0: Now that's strange.
1: And they said Reich turned away money and other resources when it was offered. That he seemed to really want his department to handle it all and was not capable of doing so. Now Reich defended the work of his office. First of all, he was 62. He had been the county sheriff for 24 years. He was unopposed the last time he ran for the office in 1968, but he was making plans for an exit. At the time of Badger's murder, Reich was recovering from his second heart attack. And while it was some time before he could join the investigation, he'd put in charge his chief deputy, Wayne Wagner. Now, as the one-year anniversary of the homicide approached, Reich said he didn't have enough evidence to make an arrest or prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt. He also said his department was having a hard time getting people in the area to discuss the case with his deputies, saying their reluctance was very typical to a rural community. He also insisted that he did use outside help, turning to the FBI and the state's BCI labs to test the candy and look over the package. He said he got the U.S. Postal Service investigators involved, too, Although, to be honest, their sole role appeared to be to apply lie detector tests to each member of Badger's immediate family.
0: Do you want to ask me the question? Well, what happened? Was anybody guilty?
1: (laughs) They they all (laughs) passed their polygraphs. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And that $500 reward? Well, in the face of the family's accusations, Reich finally told a reporter that he was the benefactor and that the reward was coming out of his own pocket. He said he knew people in the community, laughed at the small sum, but pointed out he only made $10,104 a year. So 500 bucks was a big bite for him.
0: Yeah, that um, is a lot. I
1: have to say, I didn't come across any evidence that the family had put up any kind of a reward. So good on him. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: Now, the family also asked County Prosecutor Keith Shearer to take a more active role in the case. Sheriff said, no, it was not his job to investigate, only to prosecute if the police eventually found someone to charge. And the sheriff said one problem he had was that he could not find a motive. But that's not entirely correct. Clifford Badger, as it turns out, may have had quite a few enemies. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: A lot of enemies and, or just?
1: Uh, maybe a few.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, in that side of the town,
1: well, maybe there's...
0: two is a lot.
1: According to Wayne County, yeah, in West Salem too is like, you know, 2% of the population. But according to Wayne County dog warden, Roland Strock, Badger had more than one dispute over dogs that had gotten onto his property and mauled his sheep. Now, Strock said he'd been called to the farm three times over the years to investigate livestock damage. Now, the county reimbursed farmers for any damage incurred by dogs i didn't realize that yeah, they I didn't probably either. still do so the attacks never resulted in financial loss to badger but still Strzok and others said badger was really really angered by dogs on his property maybe so, more so than most in one case badger accused a neighbor's dog of mauling his sheep so the warden whisked the neighbor's dog away and made it sit in the pound for a few days.
0: Ah, doggy jail.
1: Well, doggy jail. You don't make friends that way though. Yeah, even that's though true. the dog was later reunited with its owner. Yeah, I wouldn't want my dog to spend a night in doggy jail. Yeah, you'd probably get a little upset. Yeah. Maybe not enough to it's poison your neighbor, but you know, it's just Maybe. setting a tone here. But here's the case that really raised eyebrows.
0: I'd fill it with toothpaste, but go ahead. <laughs>
1: You know, if you bite into chocolate and it's toothpaste, that should be punishment enough. That's right. Okay, so. But anyway, here's here's the case that really raised eyebrows. It happened the year before. And that's when Badger found two foxhounds on his land, and he shot them both dead. Oh, no. Now, you know, foxhounds come with owners. Yes. Hunters.
0: With people with guns.
1: People with guns. Now, another neighbor of Badger's had found the carcasses of the animals and removed the collars and licenses from the dogs before Clifford had the chance to bury them. And then that neighbor contacted the hunters, identified on the dog tags. So the hunters tried to get dog warden Strzok to take some kind of action against Badger. But the warden said, you know, the law allows a farmer to protect his livestock. So Strzok said he never heard any more about it after that and assumed the incident had gone away. But maybe it hadn't. Because just 10 days after Badger's death, a second note was received at the Badger farm. And it read, we told him we would get him. And we did. Signed, the Coon Hunters.
0: The Coon Hunters. So,
1: you know, and other people who knew Badger, they said he had a general attitude that earned him more enemies than friends. One recalled a time when a woman had a flat tire along the road in front of his house. They said he came out with a gun, sat down to watch her, and then laughed the whole time she was changing the tire herself.
0: Uh, What a jerk move.
1: Well, you know, it sounds like, you know, if you can do that, who knows what else you've done in your life to, you know, anger people. True. So anyway, Sheriff Reich, he retires. This case grows cold. And by 1974, there's a new sheriff in town. His name is James Frost. He makes a stunning announcement. Okay. You're going to love this. James Frost. Like sheriff Frost says the case has been solved. Oh. Yeah. He said everyone can just go back to their business now. All done. And people said, well, okay, who did it? They asked him. Can't say. He said. The guy is dead, and since he's not alive to defend himself, we won't besmirch his reputation. Huh. Well, they say, what was the motive? Can't say. Sheriff Frost said, "If I tell you the motive, you'll know who did it."
0: So let's <gasps> dig him up. I mean, that's <laughs> what the. I remember. A, I remember a pope digging up a ex pope, you know, and putting him on the like you know stand and having him. Did you ever hear about that?
1: I, it's coming back yeah. to me, but, yeah. Was, well,
0: I think it was Pope Steve. Who are
1: you digging up?
0: <laughs> the suspect? <laughs> yeah, they were, yeah. But we you got to have and... a
1: name. And we don't have a name. Wow. So this guy's a real are Columbo. saying, okay, wait a minute, Sheriff Frost. So it must have been those hunters, the uh-huh. coon hunters who left that message. Yeah. And Frost says, no, the incident was not related to Badger's murder. Huh. So well when did the suspect die? What were the circumstances of his death? Can't say, won't say. Sheriff maybe at Frost this point said.
0: Frost is like, I wish I wouldn't have said anything.
1: <laughs> well <laughs> maybe I should have made this up. He said a little bit more than he meant to because one thing he let slip, intentionally or not, was that the suspect had been a resident of West Salem. So the pool of suspects has definitely diminished.
0: Okay. And and this is, just give me an idea, how long after the murder? This is
1: 1974, so three years.
0: I love giving you math there. Three years. Okay, so three years later.
1: If you give me enough time, I can do any kind of math.
0: Just don't make me show you my work.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. And one thing that he was willing to share was how they solved the case. Now, he said there was an anonymous source who had turned in the suspect's handwriting and that the Cincinnati Crime Lab compared the sample with a note that had been left with a candy and two other notes that had been sent to the Badger Farm, and the lab concluded they were written by the same person.
0: Now
1: here you might notice a little bit of a conundrum, because if the handwriting matched notes sent to the Badger Farm, and one of those notes... Was signed the Coon Hunters. That sounds like a pretty big, big clue to me. But of course, that could have been employed to deflect blame. Okay. It, I don't think it was a secret that he had killed those dogs. So I guess it's possible the murderer thought, "Eh, we'll play up the idea of these hunters being uh-huh. after him." Um. And I did find an early newspaper article that said the hunters in the shooting dispute were from.
0: Doylestown. Oh, man. So you know the Doylestown people.
1: Those Doyles, they're probably <laughs> descendants of from the Rogues, Rogues Hollow. Right?
0: <laughs> but they don't know how to use guns too well. <laughs> no,
1: there. that's right. If you'll recall from our Rogues Hollow episode, uh, those hooligans were terrible a, shots. probably a
0: hunter in Doylestown listening to this right now. Oh, I can't believe he's talking about him. I'm Wait not, a with minute. A gun.
1: Which is why they resorted to poison. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So anyway, uh, Frost identifying the suspect as a West Salem resident would seem to rule the, the Doylestown hunters out. Frost did say, however, that he told the Badger family who the suspect was and asked them to keep it a secret. And from all the research I could do on newspapers from then till now, they appear to have done just that. Huh. Now, I, I do have a personal note on this, because in the late 1990s, when I was working for the Beacon Journal... I called the Wayne County Sheriff's Department for a series I was doing on unsolved murders and mentioned the Badger case. So, this was a, more than a quarter of a century after his death. And even to me then, they would only say the case was closed because the suspect was dead. Now, to be honest, I, I can't be sure that I pressed them on the matter. I, I probably just moved on to other cases. And I wouldn't be surprised to learn that old-timers in West Salem know who it is. I think the word probably got out, but it was definitely never put out there for public consideration. And that makes this a genuine Ohio mystery.
0: Well, Let's get some thoughts from tonight's armchair detective. At this point in our podcast, we select an Ohio Mysteries listener to review the story in advance and share their thoughts and theories.
1: So tonight, for our armchair detective, we welcome Sherry Stallsmith. Hi, Sherry.
2: Hi.
1: Sherry is from Akron, but she's originally from Orville, which is in the same county as West Salem. Uh, Sherry, she's a mom of three. She's got a degree in history and has worked in several museums. And she's a true crime fan. Sherry, have you ever heard this case before? It's your neck of the woods.
2: No, I had never heard about this. Um, So it was really interesting to listen to your early version of the podcast and learn about this story.
1: Yeah, what are your general thoughts on this case? I mean, was it, you know, interesting, run-of-the-mill, something typical out of Wayne County? Um,
2: No, nothing (laughs) typical out of Wayne County. Um, it, It was very shocking to me to... Find out that somebody would poison their neighbor um i I just can't even imagine who came up with that idea, and then it worked pretty it, shocking.
1: I felt the same way the first time I heard that. I'm like, Wow, somebody would just go to their neighbor's mailbox and slip slip something in that they know is going to kill their neighbor
2: you know i I actually wondered, and I'm not sure if it's said in the information whether the chocolates were store-bought and injected with strychnine or homemade. I think almost being homemade makes it even more...
1: Even worse.
2: Yeah, more evil
1: and... An article that I read called them homemade. I don't know if they really knew that or if there were some writer's license there, but you're right, the act of creating it's like creating a pipe bomb. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, i got to ask you, too, because we discussed whether if we had received chocolates in the mail, whether we would eat them, and, <laughs> and she's like, well, of course not. And I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> I, would have, I would have been popping up before
2: I got into the house.
1: <gasps> would you have eaten chocolates put in your mailbox?
2: I don't know. If I didn't know who they came from, because, you know, the note said from your, or to a good neighbor or something like that. True, there's no name um, on there it. There was no name. I'm not sure. You know, my neighbors, when they bring me things, they usually hand deliver it. So I don't know if I would or not. I think I'd have to stop and, and think, think about, about it.
1: it. Okay, I'm the only one here at the table that's dead now. So, okay. <laughs> now, Wayne County is a very rural community. And even if you haven't been in West Salem, you probably have a sense of that rural feel. And the first sheriff's um, contention that he was having trouble getting people to talk because it's a rural community and people in rural communities don't like to talk to police. It made me think, is that really any different than suburban or big city America? You've obviously live in Accra now, you know what it's like to live in a mid sized city. Is it different in a rural community? Would they be treating police differently then?
2: I, I'm not sure that the urban, rural thing has a whole lot to do with it. Um, You know, I've discovered living in Akron that your world is as small as you make it. So, you know, there is that. But I think the thing that's really different when you live in a small community like that, you know, Orville was larger than West Salem, but it was still the type of town where you knew everybody and everybody knew you. So I think perhaps in a small community, it's just a lot more personal. You personally know the people involved and... I got the feeling from learning about the case that people knew things they didn't want to talk about and that they are protecting someone. And I think that the um, Clifford, who was murdered, um, I think that there were a lot of people who didn't like him, and so there were people that just didn't want to say who had done it.
1: Maybe they liked to, if they knew who his killer was... Maybe ultimately it was somebody they liked better and yes. felt protect, that it was okay to protect them.
2: Yes. That's, I think that, that the community was protecting somebody. That is really interesting. interesting. I also think that today, if something like that had occurred, people would be all over social media and posting their thoughts about it and posting their opinions about it. And I think it would be harder for somebody to hide I think social media makes our world a lot more open to analysis and would have pointed a guilty finger at a certain person. And I don't think that you can hide as easily today as you could have, what, almost 50 years ago? Yeah. And
1: that brings me to the second sheriff in this case, James Frost. When, uh, after the first sheriff retired and he came on, you know, he made the stunning announcement that, you know, for all intents and purposes, we're done with this case. We know who he did it. The guy's dead. We don't want to besmirch his reputation. What do you think about that?
2: I don't think you could get away with that today. I, I think that there would be an uproar from just a whole bunch of people. Uh, again, I think social media would play into that, where if that was posted, you know, an article went out and said that, that there would be people all over the place, you know, just up in arms about not naming who the guilty party was. I know the the family of Jim Frost, um, who was the sheriff at that time. And, you know, I, I had the opportunity over the weekend during Thanksgiving to speak to some people who actually knew him um, and grew up with him, went to high school with him you know, knew him while he was sheriff. He was from Orville originally. Yes, he was from Orville. And they said he was a very by-the-book person, very upstanding citizen, highly thought of in the Orville community, um, as was his entire family, very respected people. Uh, So my guess is that he was doing what... He needed to do. And and, uh, my thought is that there was somebody telling him that he could not reveal who the killer was.
1: It makes me wonder, too, because, I mean, we name suspects while they're alive. So why wouldn't you name a suspect when he's dead and it can't hurt him? Or could it? Could there have been people that were still alive in the circle of the suspected killer? that might have been harmed in some way.
2: Exactly. Um, I, I wondered that, too. You know, were they protecting more than the killer? Was there someone else who was somehow in danger, either endangering the reputation, or did it go as far as endangering their life for some reason? I mean, was there an element to this whole story that we just didn't know that they didn't share with the public?
1: Well, did it surprise you that he dismissed the idea of the hunters who lost their dog... Or any of the hunters that may have lost dogs to the years to, to Clifford, that it wasn't involving that, because I keep going back to that.
2: Oh, I you know, I kinda went back to that for a while, but you know, I I think that there's just a big piece to this story that they never released to the public. That there are probably still people out there who know. Um, you know, after I thought about it for a while, my guess would be that They're protecting somebody of a high social status, maybe somebody who's very well known in the West Salem community was the one who did it, or that it was someone in law enforcement or who previously had been involved in law enforcement. You know, I just feel like they are really protecting someone and the people closely surrounding that person.
1: And what do you think about the potential of the killer being a woman? Because they often say a poison is a woman's device for murder.
2: I think that that would be a possibility, especially since, you know, there was at least one reference to the chocolates being homemade in that era. I mean, if you said somebody made chocolates and put poison in them, I would just assume that it was a woman doing it, um you know, that might be... It is kind of, you know, when you stop and think
1: about... It is, but when you think about some somebody in a... a man in a farming community standing yes. in his kitchen making little homemade chocolates, it is kind of,
0: you know... Poisoning is a very female uh, thing to do. It is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what it most is. of them do. Yeah.
2: It, the, the whole theory of perhaps it was a woman who was the killer kind of then led me to was was there an affair somehow involved in all of this was it a love triangle was it some kind of forlorn woman who felt she had been left by the wayside I I don't know but especially if the hunters were not involved
0: All right so I uh googled Strick Nine which is not spelled the way I thought it was S T R Y C H C H N I N E anyway
1: put in strict and then nine I did <laughs>
0: I did. Thank
1: you, Google.
0: Thank you, Google, for finding it anyway. (laughs) Strychnine was popularly used as an athletic performance enhancer and recreational stimulant in the late 19th century and early 20th century due to its convulsant effects, it says. It was thought to be similar to coffee. So can I get some strychnine in my coffee, please? Uh, It's... (laughs) It was described in H.G. Wells' novella, The Invisible Man. The title character states, Nine is a grand tonic to take the flabbiness out of men. Well, maybe I should have done that instead of keto, right?
1: So if it was a woman, maybe she was just trying to get him in shape. Maybe.
0: Maybe, maybe
1: Clifford was a little flabby. For a farmer? No, you're right.
0: The protagonist replies... Farmers
1: are not flabby and they don't have affairs.
0: <laughs> The protagonist in this novel, novella says, it's the devil. It's the Paleolithic in a bottle. It's the devil. So anyway, that's what I found. it. At
1: H.G. Wells. Yeah, I also English. found in the
0: 30s that it was the most common accidental poisonous of children. But there we go. That's what I found. All right. Might have been sold over the, over the counter.
1: Yeah. See, I was thinking maybe it was uh, something in the pest control aisle, but maybe something available
2: in your local drugstore.
1: That's Sorry. what it sounds
2: maybe. like. As a stimulant?
1: If it was sold in a drugstore, maybe it would have been even more easier for the police to have tried. I mean, yes.
2: Although you know, it's it's the kind of thing. It wouldn't shock me if someone had a bottle from the 1930s still sitting around in their medicine cabinet.
1: Yeah, that's true.
2: Was accessible.
1: When I think of, like, the pest control things I have, like, in my garage, they're probably all, like, 8 to 10 years old. Right. So, if they were looking for recent purchases, they're never going to catch me. So, good point.
2: Well, I I did wonder, too, how much strychnine does it take to put in a piece of chocolate?
1: I don't know, but from all accounts... It happened fast. Clifford Badger dropped dead in a matter of minutes right on his kitchen floor. He was gone by the time they got to him. Now, I don't know if maybe his wife ate a little bit less, and that's why she was alive, and they were able to, you know, keep her alive.
2: But boy. I wondered, too, it must not have a really strong smell or flavor associated with it because, you know, when they picked up the chocolates to eat them, they didn't say, ooh, this smells bad, or
1: That's a very good point, because she ate her piece after him, and if he had taken a bite and said, oh, don't eat that, you know, apparently he didn't say that, so, good point. Very good point. Well, gosh, I, Sherry, thank you. Uh, This has been a a stellar uh, review of the situation here. Thanks for some of your insights, being from uh, Wayne County.
2: You're welcome. It was a pleasure to get to Meet with you today and talk about this. All right.
0: Well, that's it for tonight, campers. Check out our website at ohiomysteries.com for photos, news clippings, and more on the mysterious case of Clifford Badger. If you like our podcast, please spread the word. We are on Facebook and Twitter And would be so grateful if you would like, follow, share, or retweet us to your friends and family. Would love to have them join us.
1: And that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist, Victor Samalot. I have to say, if if I were throwing a party, I would have Victor's music playing in the background. Every time I listen to it, I can just imagine chatting with friends, balancing a drink in one hand, and an hors d'oeuvre in another, and swaying to this beat. I don't think you could help it. So anyway, you can sample Victor's many original songs on his website, victorsamalot.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-S-A-M-A-L-O-T.com. And be sure to follow him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And go look for him on his YouTube channel. Better yet, go see him in person. He'll be at the Cleveland Urban Winery in Cleveland Heights the evening of December twenty two and at Vento La Trattoria in Bay Village on December 27. If you forget those dates, look them up on his website. No excuses.
0: You can find links to all of our featured musical artists on our website. Just look under the featured music link at com. So we're going to leave you with Victor Samolot's song, Western Dawn, which you heard a bit of it at the start of this podcast. Enjoy, and we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio mystery.